Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. Thanks so much for being willing to chat with me, man. This is an honor. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So the, the reason I wanted to chat with you is because, I, obviously, I kind of pitched a little bit of what this project was about in, in my email mm-hmm. to you. But I, I, I tried to kind of, I don't know, I was interested in starting a podcast just because everybody was starting podcasts and it seemed like the thing to do. And I was trying to find a question that would be worth starting a project like like this on and I, I began to kind of stumble on this question and I haven't even been able to fully form it yet and each time I try to dive into it it seems like it gets more complicated rather than making more sense um, so I'm hoping maybe you can help me to unravel it a little bit I'll try so let me let me take a it might take a couple minutes here to set the stage, but let me, let me share you with, with you a little bit of the, the premise of my thoughts here. I been listening a lot to like Jonathan Peugeot and, and, and Peterson and just kind of beginning and, and even reading um who's it Yuval Harari. Just all those guys have started to kind of cause me to think about like a, a a general narrative, a gen- the general direction humanity is going, a, a history from mm-hmm. way back up until now, and then thinking about the trajectory of, of humans and where we're going. And one of the, when I try to tell that story to myself, I kind of get stuck in this this problem of thinking about technology. And I mean, I have just recently been re- listening through your uh, the Meaning Crisis series as well, mm-hmm. which has kind of helped me to to unpack that a little further and but it seems like it, every time we invent technology technology is, is a way for us to sort of like expand ourselves a little bit and, and stretch ourselves a little bit past our, our previous limits uh, in ability but also in it seems like in knowledge in data that we have access to I mean I, I feel like I'm noticing yeah, in, in, in one of your earlier lectures you talked about like how you know when we begin to be able to throw things we begin to kind of be able to examine our actions because they're sort of further away from us. If I understood that right, anyways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so we we had this like general. We're, we're propelling towards stretching ourselves out, and we and we, you know, every technology we implement, the technology of of the tribe, and then the technology of of the city, and and the written word, and and then the technology of things that allow us to move further. We're constantly expanding the amount of data that we have to process, and that we're sort of socially expected to process in a somewhat meaningful way and you know eventually we get to cars and and then planes and then computers which give us access to crazy amounts of data and then the internet and then ultimately now the 
the smartphone. And it seems that like inevitably, obviously the more data that we have access to and that we're expected to process, the more we have to compress that data down and we have to simplify it. I mean, that's how data compression works. Um, and so I, I guess that looks like, like ideology or that looks like, I'm not exactly sure what, what that is, but it's, there's, there's a inevitable compression. Like, like we have the ability to compress data and that's what we're stuck with. We just have to do that more and more and more and more. And I'll say this is where I'm getting stuck. It's like there's like 40 different directions that this, this goes in my mind. But fundamentally, at least there's, there's that main problem of, okay, the world that we're experiencing because of the amount of technology that we have demands that we process more data than it seems like humans have ever had to try to process before. And so we're stuck with this problem of, of insane amounts of, of data compression where, where I mean, and, and that, the, the utility of compressing data, it just seems so useful. And then we, then we end up like compressing our data about, I mean, I, I feel like a manifestation of this is like racism or, or so many t types of prejudice or, or, I don't know. I, 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 the word I'm coming back to is just ideology. It's like, that's a, it's a, it's a s super simplified version of a story about the world. So I, I, there's, there's more I want to get to, but I think I, I, think I need you to, to, to help me out from here. I, is, is anything catching about that story so far? Yeah, but I think I, I, maybe I, I wanted to uh, challenge it a bit um, because I think the problem that you're presenting as a, a recent problem is actually the perennial problem facing cognition. Um, so, I mean, this is what I do my work on. Uh, the amount of information that has always been available to you is combinatorially explosive. The number of the patterns I can see in the environment, the things I can pay attention to, the amount of information in my long-term memory, the potential ways I can connect it, the possible sequences of actions I can perform. When you, when you, when you calculate the math for all of these, it's combinatorially explosive. It, it, it's always been the case that we have to do something that I call relevance realization. We have to somehow sift through all this information. In fact, that's, that's the wrong metaphor. We don't sift through it. We don't check all the information and then mark it as irrelevant until we finally sift through to the, uh, the relevant information. In fact, somehow we ignore most of the irrelevant information and pick up on the relevant information. And that's why my face, for, for example, is standing out for you right now and the doorknob behind you is not really salient to you. Um, but it can be if you hear the doorknob turning, for example. And so that's always been the, I mean, and that's, that is still the main problem facing the AI project. Artificial general intelligences, even with their massive computational power. Uh, and, and so th this has been the intriguing thing. The increase in processing speed has not predicted has not been any kind of linear prediction of the capacity to generate, you know, general intelligence. It hasn't. There have been some important breakthroughs, deep learning, um, and things like that. But they actually work on what I would argue principles very similar to what I'm talking about. Which, I mean, and for example, you don't just do data compression. You do compression, and then you run variation, 
and then you do compression and and what you're doing is you're doing something very analogous to evolution in which you you create a variation and then you expose it to selective pressure and then you re-vary from that subpopulation and pre and you do that and what you're doing is constantly evolving your cognitive fitness to the environment but that perennial problem comes with perennial threats because when you do this process of sort of evolving how you're connected cognitively to the environment, zeroing in on relevant information. You do that by, as I said, ignoring vast amounts of information. Right. And you would that would be the case even if you were a computer the size of the Andromeda galaxy that could process that in nanoseconds. That, that, that problem doesn't go away. Um, so the thing, that, the, the thing that's facing us is that we have not been paying very much attention to this relevance realization process until very, very recently. Um, and we have, we have been emphasizing more and more information processing. Right. And so while we have the resources uh, uh, in some ways of relevance realization, we're not doing a lot in our culture to think about, well, how do we improve people's capacity for this? And this brings to this brings out what I think is the central problem. The problem isn't the overwhelming amount of evidence. It's that when we are biasing our attention by ignoring a lot of information in order to be a cognitive agent, in order to be intelligent, you can't be a problem solver unless you're doing that, zeroing in on relevant information. And yeah. you can do it in many different domains in a highly self-organizing fashion. The problem that that leads you to is you're inevitably falling prey to self-deception because what happens in self-deception is you find you find the you can't lie to yourself that doesn't make any sense but what you do in self-deception is you bullshit yourself using frankfurt's notion right you pay attention to what's salient uh, to the exclusion of what's the case like, i mean that's how advertising works uh, i make the the alcohol salient to you by putting attractive men and women around it, you know that that's not what it's like in a bar. Just right. go to a bar. Just go to a bar. It's not like that. Yeah. But that, And you know it's not true, but it doesn't matter because I've made the alcohol salient to you and connect. And so you'll buy the alcohol. That's how yeah. advertising works. It's bullshit, right? And so the very mechanisms that like, make my face salient for you right now so you can solve the problem of conversing with me are the very same processes that subject you to bullshitting yourself, deceiving yourself. Yeah. So the central question, I, I think, isn't, you know, sort of data compression, uh, but I, I do, I do want to say something I think you're onto about that. The central question is, how do we enhance relevance realization in people so that they reliably overcome self-deception and keep evolving their cognitive fittedness uh, to their particular problem environment? And, and that is the very ancient project of wisdom. That's what wisdom is. And I think we have a choice. And I think, so what I'm trying to suggest to you is I think you've, you've, you've put out one side of a choice that we're facing as a culture. One is we can pursue simplistic compression strategies as ideology does. Or the other is, no, no, what we should do is do what other cultures have done perennially to deal with these perennial problems is that we talk about, reflect upon, enhance our capacity for zeroing in on relevant information in a way that ameliorates our self-deception and enhances our cognitive fittedness to the environment. Um, and so we should be thinking about 
what is it that would afford us choosing wisdom over ideology? And, and it's very much like what what the, the, the difference between organisms that are highly evolvable and organisms that have tried a very uh, locally uh, advantageous uh, you know specification and they, they they're locked in and then when the environment changes they can't adapt right that's that's ideology and see and just to point out one way in which it does this it's not only the content of ideology it's the it's the medium See, ideology limits you to the propositional level of processing information. But most of that relevance realization is not going on at the propositional level. It's going on at a procedural level, a perspectival level, a participatory level. We can talk about that more if you want to get into it. But it's, so it's a, it's a, it's, 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 it's a, it's a compression not only in the, in the content, but in the manner of processing. You're actually reducing the number of functions by which you do, do relevance realization to bring to bear. Wisdom tries to do the opposite. It tries to reconnect and realign all these and then enhance your capacity for relevance realization in complex, novel, ill-defined situations. I think we actually face a choice in our civilization right now. And that choice is between continuing to just, comp well, <laughs> Yeah, I feel like you, you've answered my question and brought up like 40 other questions that we could, <laughs> or at least, I mean, th th there's a lot, a lot of content there, a lot of, of, of well, con content's a gross word. <laughs> there's a lot of relevant information there. But I mean, just to maybe dis distill down to a couple of, of key things. And feel free to I interrupt me. I know you're, I I've noticed in your conversations with other people, you're, you're ex one of the most polite conversationalists I've ever seen. You're going to make me feel comfort more comfortable here if you, if you feel free to interrupt me because I might interrupt you. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. <laughs> I generally like to hear people out uh, because even if I'm disagreeing with them, I, I don't like to be premature in my response. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm hoping that you might be able to discern the most relevant time to, uh, to, to, to take over. Okay. Um, but so even the, the term, I mean, a, a lot of what you said is kind of covered in, in your first 10 lectures or so. And that's starting to make sense to me. Although the, the key, one of you, it seems like the key terms that you've coined is relevance realization. And, and I have even a little bit of difficulty understanding, I mean, this is probably easy for you to clear up, but relevant to, to whom? Like it's, it's oh, just, well, that's the thing. I mean, so part of it is... Uh, I mean, part of it is the, I mean, the second half of the of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis is the cognitive science, where I build the argument over uh, <laughs> about 30 uh, lectures about what relevance realization is. Uh, so um, uh, there's a bit of Thank irony so here. <laughs> you to sort of compress it. Right. <laughs> uh, so the, the relevance to whom is uh, the important question, uh, it, 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 and it depends what you mean by that. I, I, I mean, there's an ontological question there and a, a political authority question, and I think we too much default immediately to the political authority question, which doesn't really help us, because I, I would argue very, I think, with a lot of good evidence that uh, many non-human species are intelligent and engaging in relevance realization, and the political authority question isn't the, the initial question. So the question is, well, relevant to a cognitive agent, right? Relevant to a, um, a system. Here, here's how I could put it. And this goes back to Reed Montague, one of the things that Reed Montague says that I really like. He says, the difference between us and computers is we have to care about the information we're processing. And the, and the computer doesn't care for itself. Um, we make it do stuff that we care about, but it doesn't care about what information right, yeah. it's processing. 
Now, why do we care about it? Well, we care about it because we're all ultimately autopoetic beings. Uh, yeah. We are beings that are like we're we're unlike tornadoes. We're not just self-organizing. We are self-organized to seek out the conditions that promote and protect uh, uh, and produce, in fact, our, 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 our own structural functional organization. That's the difference between a tornado and a paramecium even. A paramecium is, right, right? So it'll, it's I, I, seat. Sorry, I don't know what a paramecium is. Uh, it's, a, it's a microbe. It's a, uh, it's a little, like, a, or a bacteria, right? Okay, a, okay, a okay. Organism. okay, yeah, yeah. Right, so it, it, this thing will swim towards where there's more sugar and swim away from where there's more poison, right? And even there, it's doing relevance realization because it's taking the sugar and it's realizing it as, listen to the language, important to it, import, to take mm -hmm. in. And that matters to it, literally matters to it as sugar, as food, right? And there's not, and so even at that level, relevance realization is about, well, what is it, what is the autopoetic system that is taking care of itself? You are fundamentally, you have to take care of yourself as a living thing. And then of course, as a cognitive thing, and then as a cultural thing. And so when you ask me who is it relevant to, I'm going to say, well, it's relevant to you in different ways. Relevant to you as a biological thing, there because you're trying to maintain your your biological existence. There's things that are relevant to you as a cognitive thing because your mind is also self-making. And then there's things that are relevant to you as being a participant in distributed cognition. And then if you ask me, well, what's the final gold standard of relevance? That's the, that's the wrong question. That's like asking, what's the final form of biological fittedness? There is no such thing. That doesn't make any sense. That, that makes sense if you were thinking of things politically and hierarchically. But if I, if I say to you, you know what's happening in evolution? It's all working towards the final, you know, final ultimate form of, bi of biological morphology. Well, that's, that's crap. That's not how evolution works. Right. right? And so it's, it's relevant to whomever is being right served in the processes of solving problems so that they stay alive uh, that's they stay alive biologically yeah i mean they, just staying alive doesn't doesn't feel like a, a meaningful enough goal like it's like i, I, no, I no, want to be around no, for longer okay well that's not enough yeah that's only one thing but it's also right this other thing which is you the way you are a cognitive autopoetic agent Right. So you are. Well, let's let's do this. So one of the things you you value cognitively is something above survival. Well, what is that? Well, that's something like meaning in life. Well, what's the empirical evidence about meaning in life? What makes people think their lives are more meaningful, worth living above and beyond survival? Well, basically, it's a sense of how how much how well, not how much, how well they are fitted how well that relevance realization machinery is working. People feel their lives are meaningful if they are well connected, they have a sense of being connected to themselves, to other people, and to something beyond themselves um, in some fashion. And well, why is that? Because, again, relevance isn't in you and it isn't in the environment. It's like evolutionary adaptive fittedness. It's the many ways that, like, so if you can be fit your world in many different ways, and adaptively fit other people in many different ways and adaptively fit to yourself in many ways, you find your life more meaningful. And if you say why, I'm just going to say because you're a cognitive agent. Right. Is it? Okay. 
And then you're more than a cognitive agent, you're a cultural agent, which means you do this and, and you do it because you're a mammal and then a primate. You, you not only care about how things are relevant to you, you care about how you are relevant to others. Yeah. Because if you don't do that, you won't, you won't be able to bring up a child. Like that's one of the hallmarks of being a mammal, right? We, we because, especially us, because we're born so premature, we have to care, like have a child. You have to give up your egocentric concerns. You have to, the child, your relevance to the child is way more important than, the, than, than how the child is relevant to you. I, I mean, I agree with all that. I, I'm trying to put this together though with, like you said, you, you have to, we have to sift. You said you don't want to use the word sift through, but you, you want to figure out what's relevant to you on, on at least a, a couple of levels, socially, yeah. uh, personally. But it seems that right now there's. I think the thing that's frustrating to me is that there's so much expectation for everything to be relevant to me. Like so many people want want their story to be extremely relevant to me. There's so many people sure. vying for my attention, and there's. Right. I, and there's some people doing it that are like genuinely just want attention. There's actually other humans that are like earnestly trying to get somebody to pay attention to them. And then there's also tons of sort of more abstract entities like businesses that are that are trying to get my attention so that way they can sustain themselves. And it's, it seems like fundamentally they're they're tapping into three of my like most primal urges, like my urge to eat, my urge to procreate, and my urge to listen to stories probably I, I i think probably in that order i would i don't know if that lines up with any any canon of of, of urges <laughs> that that seems to me to be like at least some simple things i could point to is like there's there's some really basic circuits of like looking for things that are relevant to me that are being hijacked all of the time and it seems that my only option when so many agents are, are vying for my attention. So many businesses, so many people, so much content is all set out there just to try to grab my attention and pull, pull me into it. The only response that seems doable is to like, is to shut down and become extremely guarded. And, and that, that, that seems to be that sort of that, well, that ideology thing again, ideology is an easy way of, of quickly brushing off things I mean, maybe that's a bad definition of ideology, but that, that's at least what I'm, I'm struggling with there is just like, I feel like everything around me is training me to be less and less patient with the world and to be more and more quick to dismiss because... Oh, but, but why do you have to give in to that training? I mean, I mean so you, uh, what I'm saying to you is it sounds to me like you're treating your relevance realization machinery as a constant and that the only variable is how much challenge is placed on it. But I want to challenge that. There are, you know, like, you certainly, I think, would believe that your relevance realization capacity greatly exceeds that of a five-year-old. Yeah. Yes? Well, as the child is to the adult, the adult is to the stage. Why do you think you're done? Right. Well, I mean, th this, the point of this project was to go and think, okay, so if I'm having difficulty relating to, to different people, which I think is a, an easy, a best place to start, because obviously I want to be more patient with people. I don't... I mean, yeah. being more patient to try to discover ideas and, and tap into them, that's, that's maybe second order. But f I first just want to get better at, at actually engaging with people. So I decided to start just having a whole bunch of conversations with people. Well, that's, that's, that's excellent. And so I'm very interested. Let's talk, about, let's talk about one aspect. I'm not presenting this as an exhaustive response, but let's say as an exemplary response of what you're asking for. So one of the things that 
relevance realization uses is opponent processing. You find a trade-off between things, right? And so what you do is you get them to, do you, do you know what opponent processing is? Here, let me give Sorry? you, let, let me give you a, 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 yeah. something that's a version of it, but also a good example. So one of the things you're constantly having to refit to your environment is your level of arousal. And I don't mean sexual arousal, I mean metabolic arousal, right? And so your autonomic, notice the word there, self-governing, right? Nervous system is split up into two, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Now the sympathetic system is biased. And I'm using that language, like we talked about in relevance realization. It tries to interpret everything as a reason for raising your metabolic energy. Your, so your metabolic level, it, everything's a threat or an opportunity and, and it's doing that. And the parasympathetic system is biased. It's trying to interpret everything as an opportunity to rest and relax and heal. Hmm. And, they're, and they're like this, they pull on each other. So your parasympathetic system tries to shut off your sympathetic system and vice versa. And you think, wow, what a stupid system. No, this is a powerfully self-organizing system. You get these two things they're biased in opposite directions because at, at times you need to be very highly aroused. At other times you need to fall asleep. And the answer isn't to be Canadian and sort of be middlingly aroused all the time, <laughs> right? So you have to be able to do this. You have to, and that's what I mean. You have to be able to evolve your level of arousal and you do it with opponent processing. Right. Now we can, there, we can enter into discourse where we can use each, uh, you are, I'm biased and you're biased. It's my side bias. Most of our, 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 our cognitive processing is egocentrically biased. And what we can do, and this is, goes back to the Socratic notion, is we can, we can understand that we can enter into opponent processing where you use my bias to correct you and I use your bias to correct me. And that's what dialectic and dialogue is. Or... Or what we can do is we can reconfigure this not as opponent processing in which there's a self-organizing process of self-correction between us that evolves our ability to collectively interact and solve problems together. We can reframe that as no, no, what matters is that my ideas win. And this is a zero sum game, either my ideas or your ideas and adversarial and I have to destroy you, I have to demolish you or debunk you. And what happens is my capacity, it, it's even not good self-interest because my capacity for self-correction and self-transcendence is truncated as I demolish or defeat you or you'll defeat me and my capacity to solve problems is truncated. So we're, what we're doing is, although I'm winning, we're mutually destroying each other's ability to self-correct and right. solve problems. So what we can do is we can we can try and, well, well there's too many ide ideas and uh, too much, or we can change the style from adversarial processing into opponent processing. That's what I've been trying to do with this whole project I'm engaged in of trying to bring back Socratic dialectic mm -hmm. and engage in a process that I call dialogos rather than in this adversarial zero sum game. I, again, I'm not proposing that as an exhaustive answer. Right. I'm trying to how thinking about retooling your relevance realization gives you real concrete alternatives to the way we're just overwhelmed with opposing positions. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, that's, that's mapping onto my experience pretty well. And, and non-zero-sum game was immediately popping up into my head when you were talking about this. Isn't it? Um, there's, there's some good sci-fi movie that talks about that concept recently. Um, maybe you saw it. I'm, try, I'm trying to think of it. Anyway, it's, 
it's a good one where there's some time loops and, and really good music. I don't know why I'm not remembering it. Um, is it Arrival, maybe? Arrival. I think it's Arrival. Um, anyways. Arrival is a very good movie, yes. I, I'm pretty sure they, they talk about that concept in there, and that, that's what was coming up. But I, I, it sounds like you're saying, okay, or at least the, the way it's mapping onto the story that I'm trying to tell about this year and try to understand where I'm at is that initially, well, it seems like initially I could only conceive of this problem in a pretty one-dimensional level. It's just, okay, I'm growing impatient with people, so I'm going to exercise patience. And patience becomes the new, you know, all-encompassing goal. And at this point, I've, I've found myself dr- pulled out and stretched to my very limit where I just, I've, I've I, I mean, this past week has been a pretty rough week. I feel like I've just emotionally totally run myself out. I've, I've tried to just spend time being really patient, listening to other people's perspectives and just stretching, stretching, stretching out my perspective. And it was like, it sounds like just having that simplistic of a goal isn't a good enough goal. I need to kind of allow that to feed back into the system and, and sit, consider what, what would be relevant conversations to have. I don't need to, I mean, it, it seems that like saying that you should just pay more attention to everybody and listen to everybody more. That seems like an, it sounds like a nice thing to do. It sounds like a good thing to do. Maybe no. from some perspective, but that, that's no. not not becoming my experience. I've been trying to just have conversations with whoever, and and that's it's it's not working. It's 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 just making me more. Well, it's it's not that I, I don't want to keep talking to people, but I'm at least noticing it's it's paying a huge emotional toll. Where I just I can't I can't bring myself into that. I don't know. I, it's like I, I can't be can't intimately connect with that many people. I feel like I'm not designed to do that. I have not evolved to do that. Pulling my Christian language here for a second. <laughs> well, I don't mind you using Christian language. I have great conversations with Christians. Um, yeah, I, I, I get. I, I think I understand your point. Let me see if I, I, I'm, I'm getting it. Um, there's a lot of potential conversations available to you, and it seems like the most charitable. Uh, see, I'm using a Christian word now. Most charitable um, thing to do in response to that is to try and talk to as many people as possible. Um, and I, I, I don't think that's quite the right thing to do. Uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is concentrate more on affording people the, uh, a different kind of conversation and let that spread. And it doesn't have to be all tied to you. It doesn't have to all be tied to you. You don't have to be. You don't have to be Atlas holding the world. All you have to do, right, is right. You you have to be one of the places from which a new way of connecting spreads, so that the machinery of distributed cognition, which is how we solve our most important problems, is bootstrapped up, and, and, and it goes through like a qualitative improvement in its capacity to process information. That's what I'm suggesting to you. So I'm suggesting to you, this is what I often mean when I talk about stealing the culture. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about me being any kind of leader, and I'm definitely not talking about, you know, a political top-down solution. It's like, it's modeled on, and I don't mean any disrespect, any disrespect by this, it's modeled on like, you know, the work of, you know, St. Paul. He goes to, he sets up just a bunch of little communities where people are practicing a new way of being, agape, and then that spreads, and he doesn't have to do it. Like he, everybody doesn't have to be connected to him. Um, in fact, he dies way before the project right. comes to fruition. But it did work. The you know the entire civilization changed in a fundamental way. Yeah, it was. It seems almost like a parasitic spread if it weren't for the fact that 
it isn't you know, spreading and then killing its hosts. It's like spreading and then causing its hosts yeah. to. Yeah. So I, I think commu- community but, but does seem to be. A, Symbiosis begins as a parasite. The mitochondria, right? Yeah. They, right, right? The, they were originally parasites. Which, yes. Yeah, and hearing that for the first time, and I, I think I read some of Dawkins for the first time about, about a year ago, and to my little Christian brain after reading apologetics all the, all the time in high school, suddenly be, you know, hearing this story is like, wow, that's, that's so incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had learned this before. But, okay, that's, that's helping me. But, uh, I, I still feel... Let me see if I can dip my head. I, this problem feels like at the very at the, the limit of what I'm able to comprehend about my life, and I'm also trying to 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 look at my own life, and it's hard to step back. And, but and, but you should be there. Uh, you know, philosophy wisdom begins in wonder, and wonder isn't the same thing as curiosity. Wonder is to get to the horizon of intelligibility and be at the place where emergence is is possible. Look, we we have. To our evolvability. We have to get to a place where our our individual and especially our distributed cognition is at the at the stage of what's called criticality, where we are most open to the emergence of new intelligibility. Because that's the only way, like, and you ha- you know what those moments are like. You have insight, you have flow experiences, and, and we have to get to that point of emergence because the rate, as you, and this was your original point, right? the rate of sort of social complexity is going up dramatically. And the only thing we can do in order to do that is to shift. Instead of trying to evolve one or two two strategies, what we need to do is evolve our evolvability. We learn how to more and more get our individual and collective intelligence at the point where emergence, uh, so that we're evolving as things are changing, is, is the norm for us. Do you it's feel the opposite like, of ideology? It's the exact opposite of ideology. I get the feeling that there's there's a. I mean, obviously, personally, I can tell that there's a limit to to what you can to, like. It's like obviously, yeah, you want to be on that horizon, but when you overstep that horizon, and then suddenly you become totally untethered from any sense of of. Well, well you do and you don't. I mean, you have to be careful about that. I mean, so I, I mean, right? If I push you too far, right, then you you'll experience horror. But if I push you enough, you'll experience awe. And awe is profound because it's one of the few experiences where the sense of self is shrinking, and yet people pursue it as positive and reinforcing. You're saying awe comes after horror? Like it's, it's beyond? No, no, no. What I mean is here's where you, you can assimilate everything, right? right? And here's where I push you and you, you – oh, let, me, let me get some terms first. Assimilation is when you make everything fit. Yeah. your established frames. Accommodation is when you alter your framing so you can fit a okay. new world. So, and what you want for good relevance realization is you want it, and this is Piaget's idea of development, you want a constant balance. It's like the opponent processing within, right, the autonomic nervous system. Right. Assimilation is sort of stabilizing things. Accommodation is opening up for change and variation, and you want those to constantly be tethering back and forth. So if you if you assimilate too much, you're going to experience you know a kind of you know boredom, ennui, uh, a, a kind of sense of futility because every, nothing's changing, right? And and then if I push you way too far, yeah, and you can't accommodate. That's horror. Yeah. But if I take you to the limit of where these two can stretch with each other, that's awe. That's when you're changing a lot. 
and you're giving up a lot of your sense of self, but you think it's positive because what's happening there is you're basically evolving your capacity to evolve to new situations. Right. Did that make sense or was that a yeah. little bit convoluted? No, 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 that, that makes sense. And, and to me, it even, uh, you know, again, going back, reprocessing all of the, the many myths I was taught growing up in, in Christendom, that I see a strong analog there, even between the Garden of Eden story of, of you know, I, I feel like you can read that story as sort of an Adam and Eve transcending their limit a little bit or a little bit too much. They, they've, sorry, your, your, two, your two terms, one, they've already escaped me. Assimilation and accommodation. Okay, so they've, they, well, they've, they've gone beyond, yeah, they, they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is categorically yeah. a, a bad thing for them. It's like they've, they've taken too much knowledge and they've, they've kind of lost themselves. And it, well, I mean, that, I that's that's one way of of reading it, anyways. And then, they, yeah. in order to to respond to that, there's this fig leaf phenomenon. And, and I I think I don't know. I, I'm I'm I was relating to that story a little bit because I was just thinking about this feeling of of being overdrawn and then retreating in this sort of escapism where I try to cover up all that. Or, or maybe it relates relates to the, uh, the the story of the Buddha as well. It's like he's try, he tries after he's like he's encountered this un he, he, you know he, he sees the, the old man he sees the dying guy he sees sees all this stuff that he just I, I, yep. can't make sense of, and he, and he tries to he tries to return he tries to go home but that return yeah. doesn't doesn't work yeah. well enough. It's like that seems to be very analogous to the to the fig leaves. It's like you're trying to cover up the the nakedness of reality that you can't comprehend that you can't assimilate or that you can't um, right. And the, and this point of, uh, the point of the myth, because myths try to teach us about perennial patterns, not about the ancient past, right, uh, is that you can't do that, right? The Buddha couldn't go back to, and stay in the palace. Yeah. And then what does he do? He goes out and, right, he, he swings to the opposite. The palace is self-indulgent, so I'll practice self-negation. Yeah. And then what he realizes is that no, 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 that whole, fr he's got to get the middle path, which isn't the average between them again. Right. It's the, it's, it's, it's something, right. It's the opponent processing yeah. beyond both of them. So is that, but that, I mean, that story is obviously important because it sounds like it's the beginning of the journey that actually has to repeat and continue to, it's just it, it, maybe with more nuance as he goes, like rather than it being this violent swinging of going out and then realizing, oh, this is way too much and then returning and then, it, you know, becoming so self-indulgent. It's like, well, I mean, the, the point of the myth, I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm finding myself in the odd position of defending the myth. The point, <laughs> of the, myth, the point of the myth is, right, the kind of qualitative change in his capacity for discernment and connection, for relevance realization, was at the fundamental level of the self. And therefore, it couldn't be, it, it, it was something that takes a dramatic, you know, uh, reorganization of that process. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to do it to that extreme, but the point of the myth is to tell you, look, right, you've got to give up. With, like, you're doing this, and if you're going to do this, like the, the evolving thing we've been right. talking about, you have to realize that a self is not something you have. You can't. The, the problem is both of these are, like, they were locked in an adversarial position, right? You either, self-indulgence is, I have a self and I'm going to feed it whatever it wants, right. And self-negation is I have a self and I'm going to I'm going to deny it whatever it wants and control it. And the point is those are both wrong. Those are both wrong ways of understanding the self. And you have to break through to a whole new framing 
of what uh, uh, of how to relate to the self and how to relate to the world. And that's what I'm trying to propose to you. I'm trying to propose to you that what 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 you need to consider is the possibility of that kind of breakthrough, Dirk Brook breakthrough, as Eckhart. That's a uh, was a German mystic that coined that term. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I mean that there's an analogy that comes in my head is like the just very simple, just just walking, right? In in order for walking to to, to take place, there has to be a, a constant trade off between your left and right foot. Of, of not only that, there's a constant trade off between being stable and falling. Right. In exactly, fact, even yeah. when you're standing, right? Even when you're standing, you're constantly falling. And what you do, what you've developed, is a bunch of opponent processing yeah. that constantly keep you keeps you moving in a way that gives you a kind of stability. But is it, within that analogy, uh, there is a sense of actual passing off of, okay, at one point my right leg is bearing most of the weight, at another point my left leg is bearing most of the weight. Yeah, is that and, happening and, in opponent processing where it's like literally sometimes my parasympathetic well, system yeah. is totally... Yeah, I mean, yeah, let me give you an example. The, thing, the very thing that the Buddha, uh, you know, what, what did he do? What was the big thing he did? Well, what was he doing in his practices? He's he's pushing his attention. Notice the opponent processing in your attention right now. So there's a part of you that's trying to, and we even use the metaphor, concentrate. So you're trying to select and come down like this, and then there's a part of you that's running off and making associations, and it even may get distracted, and maybe for a minute you think, oh, right, and you can, do, and you can even go into mind wandering. And what's happening is, you're constantly doing this. It's like evolution. You're introducing variation, and then you're selecting down, and then it, variation and selecting down. And what the Buddha found was a way of taking that, right, and expanding what you might call the range uh, of flexibility and dexterity. When he, like, when he talks about the Eightfold Path and he says, like, right understanding, right meditation, it's the it's right handedness. It's not moral righteousness. It's the dexterity. It's the it's the flexibility and the dexterity of the right hand. That's what he means. You're you're inv you're improving the capacity of attention. Look, you're always doing this. Whenever you're looking at any object, you're always moving between zeroing in to get detail, moving out to get the whole. Right. And where you stop depends on how you want to use it. Do I want to use it as a remote? Do I want to throw it as a weapon? Right? Yeah. And he found a way of qualitatively improving the complexity of your attention that's analogous to how, how, how superior your attention is to a five-year-old's. Right. It, it, it seems to me, okay, I mean, that's, that's a great example and that, that helps, but the, the more you destate, like the more you emphasize, like let's say you, you have a, a fairly a fairly healthy relationship, you're doing opponent processing and it's working out all right. And then for some reason, one of those teams, one of those sides, one of those systems just makes a really, really, a really heavy handed move and they just yeah. totally take over. Yeah. The natural response is for the other side to, to, to hit back just as hard or maybe harder because now, now, now the stakes are, are, are higher and, and, and obviously, I mean, this, Maybe this could take place on a, on a cognitive level. It seems like that this could take place on a, on a sort of a tribal level, and I mean a, a, a conversational level. And I, f I feel like on on the level of the of this data processing story that I'm trying to think about, it, it seems like we, we've made such massive leaps into the amount of variation we've introduced that the well, I, I don't. See, know I disagree with you. There. I disagree fundamentally with you there. 
I think what we, we, we and, and I think that's a way in which we're being bullshitted. We have massively increased a certain kind of information to the desertification of the kinds of information that are actually integral for meaning in life. Most of that relevance realization machinery, most of that connection machinery is not carried at the level of your beliefs and your propositions. But there's, there's such an expectation to engage with all of that, like even to participate in community. It's like, okay, if, I, if I'm going to go and actually have, and have friends and not be a, a total outsider, I need to engage with my culture to a certain level. I need to watch movies. I need to be on the internet. I need to play video games. I mean, um, well, maybe I don't need to, but it, it seems yeah, like yeah. I do. Well, I, I mean, again, um, I, 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 uh, I kind of feel like you're asking me for the, an algorithm around this. And the point <laughs> is, there, is no, there are no algorithms about this. Um, like, I have found um, that people are actually, I mean, let me give you again a concrete example of what I'm, what I'm claiming. When I started doing Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, I got a lot of people saying, nobody's going to be able to watch you for more than seven minutes. <laughs> um, good grief. A, a YouTube video that's more than seven, you're doomed. And, I, and they're wrong. They're wrong. Like the first video has like 187,000 views. I, I've had many people have said they've watched the entire series three or four times. Yeah. I just had two conversations, one with both with Bernardo Castro. One was three hours, one was four hours. I've watched that, some of that. That was great. Yeah, tons of, tons of people. So the idea, oh, no, 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 that's not true. I mean, we're, 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 we're being led to believe it's true because it's in the service of people that want us to have short spans of attention, want us to be impulsive. But it's not the case that human beings have to have a short span and have to be impulsive, even in this hyper-technological cyberspace age. But how are we supposed to interact with that content that that is short form and i ignore it a lot but I doesn't mean, that ha, haven't you found that's made it difficult to to engage in certain general social circles like even your family uh, like not, not really i mean i mean sorry i i don't want to present this the wrong way i don't want to come off as arrogant i'm sure there's ways in which i'm just simply uh, uh anachronistic and egocentric i'm not, I'm not trying to deny that but, <laughs> I, uh, uh, but on the other hand i'm well aware of all the increasing evidence that instagram and facebook and spending too much time on twitter and all is actually deleterious to your mental health right and so i don't do that very much and and i seem I don't know. I, I mean, I'm talking to you now because I seem yeah. <laughs> to be able to generate social relevance without having to do all of that stuff, right? Um, and I mean, I do some of it, yeah. but I also get other people to do it for me. Yeah. So again, I'm not but trying it, to. It seems like right. so. Then, then we're just one step away. I mean, m maybe there's a way out of it along that path. But it's like, okay, well, I just get the I, I get the privilege of not having to engage with it. Well, everybody else is just struggling with this horrible addiction to. You know, but that, four or five but different no. types of addiction. But 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 wait, I'm actually trying to do a lot to afford people to get into the same place. I mean, I'm not only doing awakening from the meaning crisis. I did this 117, you know, daily where I'm teaching people to meditate, to contemplate, to do mindful movement, to learn the wisdom traditions from the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Neo, the Neoplatonists, various therapeutic techniques into their daily lives, teaching uh, and myself trying to, with others, develop this new art of dialectic and dialogos, get these authentic relating communities to talk to each other, network together. Uh, I'm not, I, I'm not, I, I'm, 
I don't want, I, I hope not. I, I aspire to not be an elitist and, and secluding myself in some little epistemic, you know, gated community while the rest of the world goes to hell. I'm trying to do the exact opposite. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense to me, but I, I still feel a, a sort of a fractured... I, I'm trying to make sense of a very fractured life where I, that I, maybe I just I have to kind of take some steps back, but there's a lot of dis- like when I try to relate to like a, a church community, that's difficult because I, I feel like I'm, I'm so while I so appreciate that that tradition on a, a really abstract level, I have such a yeah, I have such a difficulty participating and engaging with it because it feels so drastically but, but, different from my perspective but you're not alone in that i mean i i'm a post-christian person too and the fastest growing demographic in our culture are the nuns the n-o-e-n-o-n-e-s right people who have no official reli- religious allegiance and they're not because they're richard dawkins sam harris atheists that's not what's going on the, that's only a very small fraction most of them don't reject uh the established religions because they've got some deep philosophical you know atheistic argument against them they reject them because they find the religions irrelevant for helping them right. cultivate wisdom and meaning but that doesn't mean they sit around the vast majority i mean this is the group of people that have made the, this rather useless phrase you know co- common i'm spiritual but not religious what does that actually mean what does that actually mean right and and what, like what is it you're trying to do and what's amazing about these people is the degree to which they are trying to uh, so they're trying to avoid political ideologies because they drench the world in blood and they're trying to uh, they don't find the traditional religions viable and then they're trying to get some there it's like the buddha they're trying to get something other than those two extremes the problem with those people is they're still beset by North American or even European right. individuals. So they're still practicing a religion is a more abstract one that they can't see. They, it's not as easy to explain well, what also, religion is. It's also the religion of me, yeah. right? That's which, and it's a fragmented, autodidactic thing. And so it suffers from being, you know, egocentric, from being autodidactic. And all those things really magnify your cognitive biases and really make have a good chance of making things worse. So what they're trying to do, and this is what I'm involved with, with you know, in participant observation, cognitive science theorizing, participant uh, experimentation, is they're trying to recreate authentic ways of relating, communicating, and communing with each other. That's what's happening right now. But your strategy, I mean, sorry, jumping back a tiny bit, your, your strategy here is not, like, you don't see a way out of figuring out how to incorporate, I mean, like, so I mean, I feel like you're agreeing with the fundamental premise of my my uh, my story here that we've we've kind of gone too far. We've introduced too much technology, and we're not actually capable of of processing it well. And so we ignore that technology. Well, but is that, that is always to do? Been, that's always been the case, right? That has always been the case for us with technology. But but here's the here's where we have a chance for a qualitative difference. We now have the science and the beginnings of the technology to make ourselves wiser in the use of the technology. We didn't have that before. We just had the technology and then we bumbled along. We actually have, you know, you know we've gotten to the place where the cognitive science, even the cognitive science of wisdom, so, you know, the psychotechnologies and the cyber technologies, 
there's a possibility of actually creating a virtuous loop where we use the technologies to potentially make ourselves individually and collectively wiser so that we use the technologies to make ourselves individually and collectively wiser so we use the technology etc we have the potential that's a real potential i'm not saying that's what's happening right now we're in a race with you know corporate bad faith actors with the military and yes i've been approached by the military who want to take all this stuff and make super psychopath soldiers and that, so i'm not saying there's an inevitable victory here but what i am arguing for is a real possibility and which means i think we have a moral responsibility to try and actually that real possibility as much as we really can so so the school of cognitive science potentially might be an out what what is the what's the metric that within that school is used I mean, I feel like maybe you even tried to lay this out already, but how do they determine what is wisdom and what is not? I mean, there's still a fundamental sort of goal. There's there's axiom axiom level goals here of like, okay, what is it that we're trying to do by being alive? Okay, we, we want to be alive longer. We want to participate on higher levels of community, maybe. But like, is, is there is well, there uh, any clear clear cut like? So there's two. I mean, and I was privileged to you know uh, participate in. Uh, a, a wisdom consensus paper that was published in 2019 in a major journal where we get all of the people who are doing this research, right? So like psychologists, cognitive scientists, neuroscientists. And one, one thing we did is initially, it, this sounds like something out of Orwell. We formed the wisdom task force of Toronto <laughs> and we all, yeah, we, all, we all gathered in one room, uh, either physically or virtually. And we bashed away at things for 10 hours led by Igor Grossman. And I, 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 I ask you to read the consensus paper, because it, it's exactly that. There's an emerging consensus of what it is we're talking about this uh, in this phenomenon. So that's at one end. That's sort of at the cutting edge of the science, and it's there. But then I would also say, you know, you can look, but that resonates back with sort of the beginnings in, in something like Plato, because uh, Plato has this profound idea that in addition to all of our manifold and culturally variable and idiosyncratically variable desires, we have two meta desires, which he argues are universal. One is we desire to be at peace. We desire to reduce the inner war within our psyche, reduce the anxiety, the depression, the sense of internal conflict. We want, uh, we want that optimal alignment of the various parts of our psyche such that people will reliably say, you know, well, what if I gave you a lot of sex, but it caused you a lot of internal conflict? They'll say, actually, in the end, I probably won't want that, right? Well, what if I gave you lots of a fame, but it really ramped up your internal conflict? Oh, well, I don't want that, right? And cognitive dissonance is really, really punishing on people, right? So that's one thing. And Plato says, okay, so you're, what you're trying to do is align all of these different ways in which you are adaptively trying to fit to your environment, you know, those different levels we were talking about. But Plato said there's something else, right? He said another meta desire you have is that you have the desire that whatever satisfies your desires is real. So I, I'll give you a concrete example, and I do this in my classes. I'll say to my students, how many of you are in really satisfying romantic relationships? You know, and so I get the subpopulation. Let's say there's 50%. And so I, okay, I said, now, of, of those people, how many of you would want to know if your partner was cheating on you even if that meant the destruction of the relationship, 95% of that, of the people put up their hand. Because, and I asked them, well, why? And they'll say, because it's not real. 
And then Plato had this brilliant insight, and this is how it goes. He realized that most of our self-deception is driven by this inner conflict. And as we get more aligned, we reduce our self-deception, which means we get better at picking up on the real patterns in the world. And then as we get better at picking up on the real patterns in the world, we train that skill more, and then we can turn it on ourselves and get better at picking up on the real patterns in the psyche. And we can even better coordinate and align it. And then as that improves, our self-deception goes down, and we can even better pick up on the real patterns. And it goes like this. There's the possibility of the two meta-desires not, not just being out there, but of mutually affording and reinforcing each other in a vicious, in a virtuous, not a vicious, in a virtuous <laughs> cycle. A virtuous cycle. I, I like it. Is that, is that a, is that a John Verveke original, the virtuous cycle? No, no. A virtuous cycle is a, is a, is a philosophical uh, a term that's generally used for, right, a process uh, that has that kind of aspect to it. And, and, and the way to think about this is to think about what I'm proposing to you is the opposite of what my friend and colleague, Mark Lewis, called uh, his model of what addiction is. Addic addiction is the opposite. Addiction is not this reciprocal opening between you and the world. Addiction is a reciprocal narrowing. So let's do the opposite. You're really stressed. So you take some alcohol to reduce the stress. So your cognitive flexibility goes down. So your ability to solve problems in the world goes down. So you lose options. So you get more stress. So you take more flexibility. And then the notice what's happening. The world is shrinking in its options, and you're right. shrinking in the flexibility until you eventually into a rut. Yeah, you eventually can't be you can't be anything other than you are, and the world can't be anything other than it is, and that's addiction. Hmm. But what I'm saying to you, and I said this to Mark, I said if it can narrow down reciprocally it can open up reciprocally and he went oh, right that's plato's claim that's plato's claim and what's interesting about that is you know what i'm talking about because that's what happens when you fall in love not just romantic friendship love with somebody this is the work of aaron that's a last name not a first name and other people this is how people fall in love i open myself up a little bit to you and you reciprocate by opening yourself up a little bit to me and so i see what's our it expands our ability to be open and our ability to, to think at our and options. And, yeah. Uh, Mutually accelerating disclosure. We experience that as love, falling in love. Hmm. So what we can do is fall in love with being when we do this platonic reciprocal opening. Plato called it anagoge. Hmm. And that is, and that, the, the knowing enough about, we're learning enough about cognition and self-transcendence and meaning in life it's all in that you know it's and a lot of it's pointed to in that that wisdom consensus paper that this is not some just philosophical fancy this is this is a real possibility right here right now it, so it seems like that, that i mean that sounds great and that sounds like a, a magical experience I, I i i've fallen in love i'm married and I've, I've yeah. had the experience of falling in friendship love with people and just having something click, but that doesn't always happen. No. There are, you know, there, there are people that it, it takes a lot. It's like there are relationships that are seemingly one-sided and you're kind of hoping that eventually something might, something might open right. up on the other side and, and then maybe real love will begin to happen. But you only so, have so much energy to do that too. I, I know, I, right. I'm trying to bring this back to the scale of... of 
of of thinking about racism and prejudice and and and, and homophobia and, and on all these different things or I mean all these ideological traits there there are level there are ideas that are actually beyond our maybe our just our, our patience level to comprehend maybe our you're not going to solve this problem nor am I and we don't solve most problems as individuals did you like the problem of us getting in this interview notice all the technology the electronic grid all it's always distributed cognition and you're and, and you you you're not managing most of it neither am i i didn't create english did you <laughs> right so again what i'm trying to say is it's not about trying to get all my relationships to be where i'm falling but what i want to do is increase my capacity to fall in love and not just with people but with aspects of the world aspects of reality that's the point right I, I need to I need to be able to fall in love with being if I'm going to have a, a, a viable lived response to nihilism. But the point is to, to do that with enough people who, and they can do it with enough people and they can do it with enough people. You don't have to change society by moving 100% of the people. You have to move between 10 to 20% of the people. And all you have to do is give them a qualitatively, uh, a qualitative advantage, a new way of being that catches enough that it can redirect the society as a whole. So it, this is something I was talking about with JP a little bit. I, I grew up in, in evangelical circles, and so that was the theology that I understood. And, and then I'm talking to him, and he grew up Catholic and has, has been recently you know, continuing to kind of re-engage with, with that lifestyle and reprocess it. And I've been attempting to do somewhat of the same thing. I don't want to give up the the connection I have to my evangelical community, especially considering how I mean, my family, my, my parents and, and my family around me are, are pretty deeply involved in like evangelical ministry. And like that, that's, that's their life. If, if I, if I step outside of that, I, I don't get the, the privilege of, of engaging with my family on that level anymore. And so I've, I've been trying to, to, to rescue my tradition as much as I can, or at least rescue my engagement with it. And, and so you should, I mean, and I mean, I talk with JP, and I, I'm not expecting to drag him into na naturalism, right. <laughs> nor is he expecting to drag me into Catholicism. But what happens is we both take each other to the horizon of intelligibility. We yeah. both get into Dialogos. The mark of Dialogos yeah. is that he gets to a place where he couldn't get to on his own, and I get to a place where I couldn't get to on my own. And then that spreads. Yeah. I mean, and, right, and... and and, and I'm able to care about him without necessarily, you know, becoming Catholic or him, be, him right. becoming a naturalist. Same thing with Paul Vanderclay. Same thing with Jonathan Pajot. But same thing also with uh, Muslims that I have good faith dialogue with. I mean, the thing, the thing that again, let, let, let me let me point one thing out. Uh, just some empirical research. It's, it's by my one of my like uh, my, my RAs and TAs. Right? He did work on people trying to cultivate wisdom, and what he saw was. The people that are within a religious tradition outperform people that are merely secular. But what he equally found is that it doesn't matter which tradition you're in. <laughs> right? Which means people think it's mostly about the belief, but it's not. It's about the skills of your know-how. It's about the state of consciousness of your perspectival knowing. And it's your capacity for transforming your identity at the level of participatory knowing. That's what matters. And if you can connect to your family in good faith at those levels, it doesn't like is it, it, I mean 
if they want to maintain a connection with you, that's actually where most of the connection machinery runs. Right. Yeah. Well, yes. So I, I'm still still running this process in my brain, trying to figure out exactly how to how to truthfully live out my experience with with trying to understand truth and and how to live in the world and 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 having a past that's that's evangelical. But what I was bringing up with about JP is that he brought up this idea of uh, this is a was totally foreign to me, but he talked about like within the Catholic tradition, there's an idea of when there's a church, there's an angel of that church. And, and Peugeot, I think, talks about this concept as well. It's just the idea yeah. of like a, a, a distributed cognition taking on a sort of self. Or it's yeah, like, he got that from me. He okay. got that from me. <laughs> That's great. That I didn't, didn't realize I was... Not the, idea, not the idea of the angel, but the idea of the, of, of, uh, of like, uh, of, uh, like of, a, of a dynamical system that right. self-organizes and, and, and a collective intelligence that's running on distributed cognition. So he, yeah, very he much. Seems to go all like plugs that right into. I mean, Peugeot, anyways, totally goes as far as to say that's the process of becoming part of a larger self. Ultimately, uh, like the the destination there from a mythical perspective is is um, uh, oh, man, I'm forgetting the orthodox word. It's like the theosis. Yeah, theosis, right. which is to become godlike. That comes from the Neoplatonic tradition that considerably predates Christianity yeah. by many centuries. This this has been so interesting to be starting to to pay it. Like I, I I've only in in the past month or two started to to try to actually work my way. You you'd kind of been a sort of a peripheral figure in my consciousness congress, I'll say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I recently yes yeah, started to listen through through the, these lectures. It's just you know I. Obviously, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, I'd heard those names hundreds of times, had no idea <laughs> why I heard those names or what, what thoughts they were responsible for, but beginning to see how much what they thought about and, and what they have to offer has, has influenced even my tradition has been really eye-opening. And, and I don't know, it's, it's continuing to make me want to, to well, I, I definitely want to keep, keep listening through the series that you've done because it's, it's very, very interesting well, to me. But. Well, thank you. Uh, great. That's good. I mean, we're, you're actually exemplifying the very thing um, I've been trying to, I've been talking about. Um, and, and I mean, I could recommend a book to you. I read a really good book uh, called Returning to Reality, Christian Platonism for Today. And he makes the argument that it's actually the integration of Christianity and Platonism that is the, uh, is the, is the, what you might call the spiritual grammar of 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 the West, whatever that refers to, um, <laughs> and, and because you know Christianity gives us the, us the agape side, and uh, Platonism gives us the uh, especially Neoplatonism gives us the logo side. It gives and what and Christian Platonism basically integrates those together in kind of a, an opponent processing. Uh, you might want to check that book out uh, because it might give you a way of tapping into um, the the the. Your spiritual your spiritual heritage, in a way that gives you a much more um, encompassing cognitive cultural grammar, rather than what was passed on to you, you know, through Protestant evangelical Christianity that has shrunk a lot of this um, in ways um, that probably could. Uh, probably, well, I'll, could I'll say, I I I personally feel frustrated with with my own tradition in the to the extent that i mean that i feel like it lines up with the definition of an, of an ideology or i feel like it's 
in a lot of ways cut its own legs off as far as being able to interact with with the world physically, but uh, the the ideas of the world and and yeah, and I agree. And and, and I came out of a fundamentalist Christianity, so maybe I'm I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trumping you with an even more stringent <laughs> uh, version of Christianity uh, that was actually very traumatic for me. Although I've come to, I mean, that's why I I read books on Christian Platonism because I've come to try and also appreciate what that gave me. Um, you know, you're 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 like English is my mother tongue, and uh, Christianity was my mother religion in that sense, right? And um, I, that's why I'm recommending to you Christian Platonism because I I mean, um, Tyson makes a very good case for it being um, simultaneously something that reaches into um, the Christian heritage and legacy, but also is completely intellectually respectable and justifiable today as a profound response to, well, what very much is in that book, The Meaning Crisis. Now, I, I differ with him on, on certain things, but I'm offering that as something that might help you bridge yeah. to your past in a helpful way. And one of the things I... I the reasons I feel sort of, I mean, obviously there's, there's a, there's a social level of just, I, I don't want to lose the connection to the community that I'm actually a part of, but also I've just thought about the idea of like, to the extent that my community g- was tapping into true patterns about the world and, and true understandings yeah. of, the, of the way the world works. If I kind of shrug all of that off and, and put it in a category that just reads, this is toxic. Don't touch, don't go anywhere near any of this everything that was true about it suddenly becomes toxic by extension. And, and, and this, there's this growing yeah. demon that, that sprawls out of there that I just don't want to pay attention to eventually half or maybe all of reality. <laughs> so, I mean, I recommend, you know, sorry, this is self-promotional, but keep going with Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Uh, and that's why I was also recommending uh, the book to you by, by Tyson, because uh, what I'm trying to show you is there is a way of just throwing out the bathwater and keeping the baby if you'll allow me a twisted metaphor, because <laughs> uh, 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 there is. I don't know who I had think, tubs that have big enough drains to flush babies down them. Uh, no, no, it was, there were tubs like this and you threw out the water like this. Oh, okay. That analogy it, makes way more sense in, in a context of a, of a, of a bucket. I'm old enough you know because i'm i'm from the before time um <laughs> that right there's this big tub there were these big metal tubs and you put the baby in it with the bathwater, and you would that's how you would bath a baby and then don't the idea, throw out the okay yeah that's throw throw the key word. Baby bath water. <laughs> makes a lot more sense sorry so but there, there is an actual way to not throw the baby out, and and is it yeah very much it's not a, a simple i mean within the actual analogy you can just lift the baby out first and then flush the bathwater out but it, it doesn't yeah, seem that's, that's as easy that seems like that's where the analogy must reach its, its limit because well, the yeah. process the of sifting we're not, we're not quite there uh, the we're, we're we're past that we're all, we we have already had four centuries of trying to throw out the bathwater for various good reasons mm-hmm. and now we're really having to lean out and stretch to try and grasp the, the baby before it exceeds our potential to grasp it and bring it back in. So that's where we're at in the analogy right now. At least that's what I argue in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Good. Well, there, there was like three or four other things that I, I wanted to talk about with you, but I feel like they're probably all good hour and a half conversations anyways, and I realize our, our time's a little bit limited, so we should probably... I, I feel like we've you've at least given me some tools to help help process this problem. It isn't 
I don't have this sense of of just everything's clicked in it, and I and I and I'm magically my life makes sense totally. But I, I, <laughs> that, I, I feel like I've been pushed would, in that, that direction. Would be telling you something had gone really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the opposite of everything we've been talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, exactly. thank you so so much for for chatting with me, John. This is this has been enlightening. Well, thank you, thank you, Garrett. I've enjoyed it a lot. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, on a more personal note, uh, keep going. Uh, I, I don't want to sound like Augustine here with offering my personal testimony <laughs> like that. But, you know, I, I'm on a journey very similar to you. And I'm older and I'm farther down the road now. I sound like your grandfather. But, <laughs> um, um, I mean, keep going because I, these things are existentially resolvable. But they require you're not just going to think your way through this change that you're pursuing. So you cut out for one second. They were going to require some what? They're going to require some transformation. You're not just going to think your way through this. Right. So that's not how it's going to happen. It's a, it's very much like what you're talking about earlier about you know becoming friends. You can't just think your way into a friendship. It doesn't work right. that way. Right. Well, thanks for that. No, I. <laughs> Sometimes I, I really want to have that clicking experience. So, and, and it, it's confusing yeah. because there, there are moments that, that, that give the sensation of that experience of like, well, at and, least and they sense matter. Of like the, yeah. They matter. See, the, 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 the two mistakes people make is they think it's got to just be one Titanic Freudian insight. <laughs> and I go, oh my God, now I'm free. Or they think, oh, it's just endless plugging with no insight. What you have to understand is that insight is is you taking another step, but it's a different kind of step than the incremental steps. But it's not, it's never going to be, uh, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Or at well, least it's extremely rare and only shows up in stories that are at least 300 years old yeah. or something like that. <laughs> I was going to say, isn't that, that that's the, I, I still don't understand exactly what's happening in this point with the Buddha where he attains enlightenment and like reading the, the Tibetan book of the dead last year with my friends, like don't, I don't, get what that experience is like but <laughs> that's probably well, I, I, I try to offer an account of that later in the series but don't forget the buddha went through six years of of transform transformative processes that were at a level of dedication that would be equivalent to like 25 years for most of us um so once you've done 25 years then you can <laughs> sort of say what's up siddhartha all right, right. Um, so when i'm 50 that I, that I can start complaining <laughs> the Buddha, the Buddha said, and I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not, but the Buddha said, you know, the jar, drop by drop, the jar is filled, hmm. and you won't think the jar is filling for the longest time, and then suddenly you turn around and go, wait, that's different. The jar is filled. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I, I'm I'm feeling some some dripping sensations, anyways. So <laughs> I don't know if that's oh, a terrible that's... That analogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good-faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>